All right, how we doing, Elevate? We doing good? Yeah. Any, any, any LSU fans in the house this morning? Y'all was worried in that fourth quarter, right? Hey, that's right. <laughs> hey, if you don't know me, my name is Robert Andrews. I'm glad that you are joining us today. We're in week two of a series we are titling Motion. We're talking about setting things in motion in our life. And last week we talked about uh, setting a miracle in motion in our life. I asked you guys how many of you need a miracle right now in your life, and several people responded by raising their hands. And so we talked about things that we can do to really set that in motion. And so today I want to talk to you about setting trust in motion, setting trust in motion. Uh, the truth of the matter is each and every one of us, we, we put our trust in a whole lot of different things. Uh, as parents, we actually teach our children to put their trust in us when, when they are, are young. I remember when Brianna Grace was two, maybe three years old, I would set her up on the counter in the bathroom and I would say, all right, come run and jump to me. And she would run and she would jump to me and I would catch her and I would just hold her. I would set her on top of the washer or the dryer in the laundry room and I would say, okay, uh, come, come run and jump to me. And she would run and she would jump to me and I would just hold her. And I remember one time I put her on top of the refrigerator in the kitchen and I said, all right, jump to me. And I almost caught her that time. You know what I'm saying? But uh, uh, I'm just kidding. But we really do. We teach our kids to put their faith and their trust uh, in us when, when, when they're young. But many of us actually fail to put our trust in our Heavenly Father. Many of us fail to put our trust in a Heavenly Father who loves and cares for us more than we can possibly uh, imagine. It's really true. And so in Mark chapter 10, we read a story about a, a rich man. Matthew's account of this event tells us that not only was he rich, uh, but he was young. Not only was he rich and young, but he was a ruler. It's the story of the rich young ruler. And that's the story I want us to look at this morning as we talk about setting trust in motion. If you got your Bibles, you want to turn there, uh, feel free to do that. If not, the words are going to be on the screen. I'm just going to read this passage to you again. Mark chapter 10, starting verse 17, the Bible says this, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him saying, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And he said, you know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. And he said, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And at this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, what I want you to understand about this rich young ruler, about this, this, this guy right here, is that he was incredibly talented. I mean, he was, he was amazing. He was awesome. Uh, he could have won Jeopardy's Tournament of Champion, uh, Champions. He could have won Wheel of Fortune. He could have won America's Got Talent all in the same season. He could have done all that at the same time. I mean, he is remarkable. He really is. Every mom, mom, uh, how many of y'all moms got a daughter? You got a daughter. This is the type of boy you wish your daughter marries. Uh, actually, mom, this is probably the type of guy you wish you had married. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I mean, he really is. He's incredibly remarkable. He really is. And so uh, his story actually teaches us how to establish God-based trust 
in our lives. And so I want to point out three things to you, three things if you want to write them down. The first thing I want you to see when it comes to setting trust in motion is we need to understand the start of trust. The start of trust. I want you to think about this guy. He's a rich young ruler. He's got everything money can buy. He's got the three camel garage. He's got granite countertops. I mean, he's got a Tempur-Pedic bed. He's got silk sheets. He's got everything you can imagine. Yet there's still something that tortures his soul. There's still something that keeps him up at night. He still feels like something is missing. That's why he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, when you and I think about eternal life, what we tend to think about is life beyond the grave. That's what we think about. But that's not what this guy was thinking. This guy was thinking, what can I do tomorrow that's going to bring purpose and meaning to my life right now? See, eternal life doesn't start when you die. Eternal life starts when you connect with an eternal God and we place our trust in Him. But this guy was searching for purpose. He's searching for meaning. And from this brief interaction with Jesus, what we're seeing is that it appears he had a perfect record. It, it appears he hasn't done anything wrong. Jesus looks at him and says, man, you know the commandments. He says, have you ever murdered somebody? And, and, and this guy says, you know, no, 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 I've never done that. Anybody in here, you ever, you're a serial killer? Any serial killers? Don't raise your hand, it'll get awkward. You know what I'm saying? But this guy was not a killer. He was not a murderer. And so Jesus says, you, you know, you haven't killed. What about this? Have you committed adultery? And keep in mind that Jesus said adultery is not just the physical act. He says, if you've looked lustfully at another woman, that's just as wrong as the physical act. So Jesus says, have you ever done that? And the man says, no, I've never done that. He is still in the game at this point. He had never stolen not even candy after Halloween from his little brother. I mean, he had never done any of that. He had never lied, not even a little white lie. He had never done that. He had never manipulated teenagers. He had never backtalked his parents. Parents, wouldn't that be amazing if your kids had never done that? I'm telling you, this guy was amazing. He was absolutely great when it came to the way that he interacted with other people. In fact, all of those commands that Jesus specifically asked him about deal with the way you and I treat other people. But then, in a subtle way, Jesus asked, well, what about loving God with all of your heart? And folks, even though this guy did great with all the other commandments, this is where he failed. See, the, the first commandments that God gives in Exodus chapter 20, starting in verses 3 and 4, I want you to see this. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. He says, you shall also not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth below or in the waters below. The problem for this guy is that he had other gods. He might not have had a god or an idol set up at his house that he bowed to, but he had an idol, he had a god set up in his heart. And the truth is, many of us are just like that rich young ruler today. Many of us have idols that are set up in our heart. You see, our heart is an idol-producing factory. Our heart was made 
for worship. Our heart was made for the worship of God. Our problem is our hearts are deceitful above all things, and our hearts tend to lean towards other things for worship. So this man had what appears to be a perfect record when it comes to religion. But religion wasn't bringing the satisfaction to his life that he hoped it would bring. Religion wasn't feeling the emptiness that he had in his soul. Religion just left him feeling empty. And so this man not only had what appears to be a perfect record, but he also has what appears to be the perfect performance in this passage. I mean, in verse 17, he runs up to Jesus and he falls in front of Jesus. I'm telling you, people who were watching this go down, they knew about this guy. He was rich. He was young. He was eligible, man. And he was a ruler. They had read about this man in Times Magazine. They had read about this man in Forbes Magazine. Everybody knew about this guy. The entire society knew about him. He was among the, the, the elite. And they see this man running to Jesus, almost disgracing himself. And he falls at the feet of Jesus. See, I need you to understand that during this particular time, men didn't run. Men didn't run. Men didn't run in this society. How many people would like to embrace that? That's what you're embracing right now. I just don't run. Men don't run anymore in society, right? Wouldn't you like it to be like that? Some of y'all are like, don't want to admit it, but I know. No, we don't like to run, right? We don't like to do that. If I'm running, a bear better be chasing me. You know what I'm saying? I just, I just can't do it. But in this day, men didn't run, especially wealthy men. It would have been embarrassing for them to do that. Why? Because they were wearing cloaks. And if they'd have taken off running wearing that cloak, you know what would have happened to their legs? It'd have got tangled up in that fabric, and what would they have done? They'd have fallen over. And so what they would have had to have done before they ran is pull their cloak up and run like this. Could you imagine seeing a rich, could you imagine seeing a rich young ruler taking off like that? That'd be embarrassing. They didn't do that. And so everyone would have been blown away by the way they saw this man acting. And this guy in this moment, it looks like he has the potential to become the 13th disciple. All the other disciples know this guy. They're freaking out. They're thinking this guy is so much better than we are. I mean, he's rich. He's got money. He's a ruler. He's got power. I'm telling you, they are doubting their position. They're thinking he's so much better than us because when Jesus was going through the commandments, they were probably going, I was out at number three. One of them was probably like, well, I was out at number two. And then, you know, one of the disciples who had a crazy eye was like, I was out at number one. I mean, you know what I'm saying? They, they were just worried, man. This guy was remarkable. He's incredible. But Jesus wasn't going to be fooled by some outward display of emotion. See, even though this man looked all together on the outside, even though this man looked like he had everything right, he still lacked a simple faith. Look at the verse, the beginning of verse 17. The Bible says this, as Jesus started on his way. See, a question that you and I need to ask ourselves is, as Jesus started on his way from what? And the answer to this question is, as Jesus was starting on his way from some of the most powerful teaching regarding the kingdom of heaven, 
This guy had actually just missed the answer to the question that he was asking. If he'd have come just a little bit sooner, he would have heard some of the most profound stuff concerning the kingdom of God. In fact, look at what Jesus says just two verses earlier in verse 15. Jesus says, truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. See, folks, kids don't realize how easy they got it. They don't. The, the older you get, the harder it gets. The younger you are, the closer to the kingdom you are. Jesus said, if you want to inherit eternal life, is that what you want to do? If you want to inherit eternal life, if you want to enter into the kingdom of God, then the way that you do it is by having a childlike faith. What is a childlike faith? It's just like I said, where that child puts their trust in their father. They put their trust in their parents. It's where you and I basically just say, God, you are God. I am not. I accept that. That's a simple childlike faith. You don't have to do anything else. This guy might have looked like he had everything together on the outside, but his question, the question that he asked Jesus is all messed up. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He was extremely religious and he was good at it. And that's what religion teaches is that you have to do, you have to do, you got to do this, you got to do that, you got to do more of this, you got to do more of that, and you got to do all of that without failing to do this over here. But the difference between religion and Christianity is that religion teaches I must do, Christianity teaches it's already been done through Jesus Christ. It's already been done through Him. This guy thought, I just got to work harder. I just got to do more. But a kingdom child doesn't focus on what I've got to do. I got to do this. I got to do that. A kingdom child doesn't focus on that. A kingdom child focuses on Abba, Father. They just put their trust in Jesus Christ. That's who makes us right. It's Jesus. I'm telling you, the disciples thought, man, this is the beginning of something great. This is the start of trust in this guy's life. And the second thing that I want you to see is not only the start of trust, but I want you to see the heart of trust, the heart of trust. And ultimately, the heart of trust deals with receiving the love of Christ. Verse 21 in this passage has become uh, one of my favorite verses uh, in the Bible. Uh, that verse says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Now, what's interesting is that the disciples are usually recording the works of Jesus. That's what they're doing. They're usually recording, recording the works of Jesus or the words of Jesus. But here, under the inspiration of the Holy, Holy Spirit, they're, they're recording the looks of Jesus. See, I, I don't know what it was, but apparently there was something about the way that Jesus looked that day that later on when the disciples got together and they were talking about the works of Jesus and the words of Jesus and they got to this particular event, there was something about the way that Jesus looked that day that caused the disciples to say, man, did you see the way Jesus looked that day? Did you see how he looked at that guy? When I read this passage, I'm trying to figure out what the look of love actually looks like. What do you think the look of love looks like? Well, what does it look like? I mean, I don't know for sure. But again, there was something about the way Jesus looked. How many of y'all know that love has a particular look? How many of y'all know that hatred has a particular look? 
Well, have you ever wondered how Jesus looks at you today? Have you ever wondered how he looks at you? Do you think that he looks at you with a frown, frown of judgment because he knows what you did last night or last week or last month or last summer? Or do you think that he looks at you with the look of love? In case you're confused, in case you don't know, let me clear it up. Jesus only looks at you with a look of love. He only looks at you with the look of love. If you ever doubt the look of love from God, all you've got to do is look at the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ is the most powerful look of love this world has ever seen. It really is. But far too many of us believe that because of what we've done, or because of what has been done to us, that God the Father doesn't want anything to do with us. And so we allow those feelings that we have to push us further and further and further away from a loving God. Man, we long to be made right with God, but we just don't think it's possible. I heard a story or read a story about a a guy named Paco from Madrid, Spain, who found himself homeless and sleeping on the streets. He and his father had gotten into an argument, and so he took off and ran away. And so the father desperately looked for his son, Paco, but unfortunately he couldn't find him. So in desperation, the father placed an ad in the local newspaper, and the ad simply said, Paco, if you're reading this, all is forgiven. Meet me in front of the newspaper headquarters at noon tomorrow. Love, Papa. Well, the next day in front of the newspaper headquarters, the father showed up, but not only did he show up, 800 young men named Paco showed up as well. 800 men named Paco showed up waiting for their fathers and waiting for forgiveness that they never thought was possible. The truth of the matter is there are some people in this room who just don't feel like forgiveness is possible. We think that God can't take us back or God won't take us back, but I'm telling you, God only looks at you with the look of love. He's not ashamed of you. He knows everything about you. He's not embarrassed by what you have done. He's not intimidated by the life that you have lived. He looks at you and he just loves you. Do you even know he's looking at you today with that look? Come on, parents, you know what that look looks like. Do you remember when your child was first born? Looking at your child with that look of love? You'd place them in the crib, and they would be asleep, and you would just, anybody ever do this? You would just walk over to them as they were sleeping. And Anybody know what I'm talking about? I mean, it's creepy when they're 13 and you do that. (laughs) What are you doing, Dad? I'm just looking at you with the look of love. Go back to bed. Don't do that. Right? But we know what that look looks like. I remember when Amanda and I started dating. Couldn't help but look at her. She'd be doing weird stuff. I'd just be looking. She'd go to get a refill at McDonald's. Just looking. We've been married for 16 and a half years now. And I still find myself looking at her with the look of love. With the look of love. And the thing about God is God doesn't just love you when you're young, when you hadn't messed up much. God knows everything about you. And he still looks at you with that look of love. He maintains that look of love. 
So this guy, this rich young ruler, he's asking all the right questions. It looks like he has the start of faith, man. He's, he's under the heart of trust because he's, he's under the gaze of Jesus. He's experiencing that look of love. But the third thing that I want you to see is the challenge of trust. The start of trust, the heart of trust, and the challenge of trust. And this has to do with fighting the battle of stuff in your life. See, this guy says he's kept all the commandments. And Jesus turns to him and he says, one thing you lack. One thing you lack. Well, when I first read that, I kind of get mad at Jesus. What are, you, what are you getting mad about, Jesus? This guy's incredible. This guy's almost perfect. He's done everything right. And you're just going to point out this one thing? I thought you were full of grace, full of mercy, full of kindness, and you just want to focus on the one thing. It'd be like your child coming home with a test that has a 99 on it, and you looking at him and saying, what about that other point, you failure? You just want to focus on this one thing, Jesus? But look at verse 21. Again, Jesus looks with the look of love. He says, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. See, I don't think Jesus was playing there. I, I think this is a genuine invitation. I think just how Jesus went up to Matthew as he was sitting at the, at the tax collector's booth and said, hey, leave it all and follow me. And just how Jesus went up to Andrew and Peter as they were fishing and he said, hey, leave your nets, leave it all and come and follow me. I think that's the same type of, of invitation that Jesus is extending here. He's saying, come be my 13th disciple. But this man wouldn't do it. And you got to get this. See, on the outside, this man looks the part. He's asking all the right questions. Jesus, can you help me with these eternal issues that I'm having? The disciples are thinking, man, this guy's going to be such a better disciple than we are. And look at the way Jesus is looking at him. Whatever that look was that caused the disciples' hearts to melt, they're thinking this is going to happen. But this kid misses it. Because look at verse 22. The Bible says that at this the man's face fell and he went away sad because he had great wealth. See, the problem with this rich young ruler was that the one thing he lacked was his everything. His one thing was his everything. And folks, life is too short for you and I to get hung up on stuff. It is. I'm telling you, it, if, I'm not telling you to sell everything you've got. If God tells you to do that, that's, that's different. But it's okay to have stuff. It is. It, it's not the volume of stuff that you have that's the problem. It's the value you place on that stuff. It is. It's what I like to call the Gollum effect. Anybody ever, anybody ever seen the, the Gollum? Anybody know who the Gollum is? What's, what's the one word everybody associates with Gollum? Precious. My precious. Right? My precious. Husbands, 
your wife has a little golem in her. I know you look at her and you think she's beautiful, but she's got a little golem in her. Your kids got a little golem. How many of y'all know? Mine, your kids, right? 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 Each and every one of us have a little golem. We've got a little golem in us. And what Jesus points out to this rich young ruler doesn't have anything to do with his stuff. It has everything to do with the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's all about what this rich young ruler is going to put his faith and his trust in. Was he going to put his trust in his possessions? Or was he going to put his trust in God? Jesus highlighted the one area that this man secretly worshipped more than God. And that's what Jesus does to you. And that's what he does to me. Jesus says, I can't be second. I have to be first. Jesus isn't something that you and I just add to our life like you might add salt and pepper to your food to make it taste a little better. Jesus isn't something we add to our life. Jesus has to become our life. He has to become our all. He has to become our everything. We live for him because he died for us. Is that the way that you're living your life right now? Because that's what it means to put trust in motion. See, I'm wrapping up. I'm almost done. But I want you to imagine for just a second that you and I were to take a trip. We were going to get on a Southwest airplane when we leave here. We're going to go on vacation. And we're going to go to Hawaii. All expense paid. Anybody in? Some of y'all, I don't know. I got something in the oven, man. I'm going. Right? Hawaii? It's kind of getting chilly out there. So let's say we, we're all going to Hawaii. We get on this airplane, man, and it's, it's a full flight. Not an empty seat in there. People are, people are basically having to sit on top of each other. And so we get on there, and we're flying, and let's say we get over the ocean, and all of a sudden the captain comes on board. He says, ladies and gentlemen, he said, I want to welcome you aboard our flight. As you can see, it's a full flight. And we've just been informed that we're over the legal weight limit because of all the baggage that's on this airplane. But we've done some calculations. And we're pretty confident that if we dump half of our fuel out, there's a 57% chance that we'll probably maybe make it. I mean, we might have to glide the last 20 or 30 miles but we think we can make it. All we got to do is dump some of our fuel out. What would you be thinking? Don't dump the fuel. Dump the baggage, right? The baggage is not that important. Well, that's what Jesus is telling this man right here. He's saying, get rid of the baggage and keep the fuel. Get rid of the stuff that is keeping you from getting where I want you to get. Get rid of the stuff that's keeping you from being where I want you to be. Get rid of the baggage and keep the fuel. But it's the golem effect. We want to hang on to it. The problem for so many of us is we, we just haven't figured out the difference between what's fuel for the spiritual life and what baggage actually is. Jesus tells this man to sell all he has and then come and follow him. And the Bible says that he goes away sad. Well, I can't help but think that in that moment, the disciples are shocked. 
Jesus, you can't just let that man walk away. Jesus, you've got to go after him. Because look at what the Bible says in Mark 10, 23. It says, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now let me stop because what you need to know is that that's us. We're the rich. We're the rich. You say, I don't feel rich. If you got change in your pocket, you're rich. If you got a change of clothes at home, you're rich. If you've got food in the fridge, you are rich. Jesus says how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And when he says this, the disciples would have been shocked. Because during this day, people actually believed that the more wealthy you were, the more blessed by God you were. They felt like the more wealthy you were, that meant you were closer to God. And so Jesus basically turns that teaching upside down and says, that's not how it is. And look at verse 24. It says the disciples were amazed at his words, again, because it went against what they had always heard. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, how many people have ever heard somebody get up and preach or teach and talk about the eye of a needle actually being a gate in Jerusalem where a, where a camel would be difficult for them to kind of go through? I've heard that before, but that's nonsense. That's not what this is talking about. Jesus is being sarcastic. How many of y'all know Jesus can be a little sarcastic sometimes? Jesus is being sarcastic. He's saying, look, let me tell you something. You, you ever seen a, a needle, the eye of a needle where you put the, the little thread through? He said, look, if you can take a camel's head, his big old head, with a camel with his big old hump, and get that thing through that hole, that, it'd be easier for you to do that than for you to actually save yourself. That's what Jesus is saying. And so verse 26, look what happens. The disciples are even more amazed. And they said to each other, well, then who then can be saved? And that's the most important question. And Jesus' response is only those who put their trust in God. Look at what he says. It says, Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Again, this story isn't about money. This story isn't about stuff. This story is about the lordship of Jesus Christ and putting our trust in in him. It doesn't matter if you're the richest person in the world or the poorest person in the world. You've got to put your trust in Christ. Why? Because Christ is the only way to salvation. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through Christ. Don't put your trust in things. Don't put your trust in your actions. Don't put your trust in your stuff. Don't put your trust in people. Put your trust in Jesus. He's the only one who saves. This man walks away from the life he so desperately wanted. This man walks away from the person who could actually satisfy his soul eternally. Don't you make that mistake today. Don't you make that mistake. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, I don't know where you're at in your spiritual life. But I wonder today, if maybe you're here and you have been putting your faith and trust 
just in yourself and in your actions. You say, well, I come to church, I pray. That's not what saves you. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. And today you just need to accept that. You need to understand that God loves you more than you can imagine. Again, you're a follower of Christ. But somehow you're thinking that it's your performance that makes you right. You say, Pastor, I want to I wanna repent of that today. I'm just going to ask it right where you are. You say, Father, I thank you that you're the only way to salvation. I thank you for providing everything that's needed for salvation to take place. Forgive me for trying to add more to your work. Again, our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. But maybe you walked in here today and you don't know God. You want to. But something keeps telling you there's no way that God can forgive you for what you've done. Maybe you've had people say there's no way they can forgive you. I want you to know that God just looks at you with the look of love. And right now his arms are wide open. He's ready to welcome you back into the family. He wants to save you. And so if you know you want to be saved, you know you want to give him your heart and your life, I'm going to ask it right where you are. You just pray this prayer. Father, save me. Forgive me for all my sins. Come into my heart, God, and make me a new person. I confess you as Lord. I confess you as Savior. Father, I pray that from this moment on, that I'll live my life recognizing that I'm your child. May other people know that I'm yours by the way I live. Thank you for saving me. Again, our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. But if you pray to be saved today, I want to ask that you'll do me a favor. Right where you are, would you just lift your hand so I'll know that you gave your heart to Christ? One, two, three, four. Amen, Father. Father, I thank you for new life. Father, I thank you for these who have surrendered to you. And God, I pray that it would be a real decision. I pray, Father, that from this moment on, their life will be different. I pray all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.